Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Mohegan playwright, actress, and director Madeline Sayet is making waves among audiences and critics for her one-woman show, Where We Belong. The play is both written and performed by Sayet. It examines themes of belonging and confronts the modern repercussions of past European colonialism. Madeline Sayet joins us as part of our ongoing series, Native in the Spotlight, coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Colville Confederated Tribes are getting some much-needed funding to help expand broadband services on the reservation. Steve Jackson reports. Colville Tribal Business Chairman Jared Michael Erickson says internet access on the Colville Reservation is spotty at best. He says less than half of the reservation has any access at all. Erickson says that was a big obstacle to students during the height of the COVID pandemic when they had to attend classes remotely from home. We, you know, we help buy hotspots with the school districts, working with them for our kids, but a lot, they just want to work where they live, so they have to go to where they can find a wireless signal or they can get service on their phone to do some of their work or turn it in, so um, they weren't even able to do it within the, you know, comforts of their home trying to get these things done. The federal government is stepping in with a big infusion of money, $48 million from the National Telecommunications and Information Administration to establish and improve Internet access. Erickson says the money will be used for both fiber and wireless systems to the OMAC, Nespelum, Keller, and Inchileum districts. He hopes service can reach many people who are in underserved rural locations on the 1.4 million acre reservation. The tribes have already established their own internet provider service, Bigfoot Communications. The construction of the new broadband infrastructure will begin as soon as the grant money comes in, which is expected soon. For National Native News, I'm Steve Jackson reporting from Spokane. The All Pueblo Council of Governors in New Mexico hosted a forum in Albuquerque on Friday for candidates vying for congressional and state seats. All Pueblo Council of Governors Chairman Mark Mitchell says the candidates need to know that tribes have the oldest existing governments in the state. And he says tribes need to be recognized and treated as sovereign nations, having government-to-government relationships. It's critical now that the folks that are running understand that this is happening and that we've been here and it is time that we hold such an event. And it's historical at this moment because we're right in between getting ready for voting and we're, we're right there. So hopefully our, our people, the Native people, the Indigenous people come out to vote. Five candidates for congressional districts, including all three of New Mexico's current U.S. House of Representatives, attended the event. Only one challenger was not there, having a representative speak on his behalf. Candidates running for state attorney general, secretary of state, treasurer, and public lands commissioner came to the forum. Both candidates for the top state race, governor of New Mexico, were invited. Current Democratic Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham did not attend, but had Lieutenant Governor Howie Morales speak on behalf of their administration and bid for re-election. Republican challenger Mark Ronchetti came to an early meet-and-greet with leaders, but left 
and did not stay for the forum. Each candidate was given five minutes to address leaders and time to answer any questions posed to them by the council. Among issues discussed were water rights, missing and murdered Indigenous women, child welfare, public safety, sacred site protection, and native language and culture in public education. Chairman Mitchell. The issue, of course, at the core is funding. And then secondly is the health care, mental, mental health, etc. Senior care, elders, um, education is a critical component of all that. So a little bit of everything that we're trying to have the candidates understand our issues. The council represents the 19 Pueblos of New Mexico and one in Texas. A number of Pueblo leaders attended the forum, which was also streamed online. In Minnesota, the Red Lake Nation and its Political Education Committee are hosting a candidate fair October 25th. Candidates for local and state offices and a congressional district have been invited. Organizers hope to draw both Native and non-Native community members to the event. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Do you know how to help someone having a seizure? Join us for National Epilepsy Awareness Month and become Seizure First Aid Certified at epilepsy.com slash first aid or call 1-800-332-1000 today. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Madeline Sayet is an accomplished writer, director, and actress on stage. As a member of the Mohegan tribe, Sayet's work is inspired by both Shakespeare and traditional Mohegan stories. Where We Belong is written and performed solely by Sayet. The play is garnering praise from critics and theater goers and explores themes of belonging and her own native identity. She's also the director behind the stage play Flying Bird's Diary, a play about the last fluent Mohegan speaker. Aside from these projects, she's also an assistant professor at Arizona State University, where she teaches contemporary Native theater. Today, Madeline Sayet joins us as a Native in the Spotlight. We'll talk with her about her new and past work. And of course, we want you to join us. If you have a question or a comment for Madeline Sayet, please call 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Or you can post on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Our Twitter handle is one 800 99 Native. Where We Belong has been described by the Washington Post as toggling between English and Mohegan with poignancy, a solo performance in which the playwright and star mourns the suppression of her indigenous language and the assimilation that brought about its dormancy. Let's listen now to a trailer for the play. We must all stand in love for the tribe. That is the only way we will survive. But what if we don't? What if in my lifetime we all just fade away? Then you will have to explain that to your ancestors when you face them. Mm -hmm. My name is Achokais. I am a Mohegan. I study Shakespeare. Most people don't like talking about colonialism as much as they like talking about Shakespeare. Today's story isn't about Shakespeare, though. 
Today's story is how I became a bird. I need a fresh start. Somewhere I'm not hated for being me. The settlers killed something in our souls when they took our language. I look at my wings, wondering if they'll ever work, wondering if they even know what they are. Can someone tell me where I'm going? They don't care about balance, stability, community, peace. They care about me. I've been trying to remember a story. A long time ago, our ancestors told it to us. I think it has to do with where we belong. In the sky, one world might be clear. The closer you get to something, it's always more complicated on the ground. That was a trailer for Madeline Say It's One Person Play, Where We Belong. She joins us now here today on Native America Calling as our Native in the Spotlight. Madeline, welcome to the show and congratulations on your success. Thanks so much for having me here. Absolutely. And Madeline, please feel free to further introduce yourself if you'd like. Hello, I'm Madeline. Uh, as, as you said, I'm a citizen of the Mohegan tribe. Uh, lucky to be calling in now from Connecticut, um, and where I'm working on a, the project Flying Bird's Diary that you mentioned earlier, and um, I'm just uh, so excited to, to be here and be speaking with you today. Thank you. Madeline, we're super excited to, to have you on the show and just to learn more about you and, and all of these fantastic plays and all of your other work. So um, I, I wanted to start because I, I read an earlier interview in which you shared that where we belong was not originally meant to be a play. And I'd like to ask you what changed that perspective? Yeah, it really definitely was not meant to be a play. Um, I originally wrote it to process some things I was going through. Um, and, and as a sort of, you know, uh, storyteller, theater maker, I processed it through story, but people kept becoming interested in the story um, and wanting me to share it more. And and a big part of why uh, it wasn't supposed to be a play, right, was because it was so personal and so vulnerable. And I've directed a lot of plays by other fantastic Native artists that are personal or vulnerable to them, but I had never shared anything that was um, super uh, personal about myself publicly in that way. And I was so terrified early on, what will they think about about me, about the fact that I'm talking about these things? You know, what will my, my mom think? What will my, my, you know, my tribe think? What will everybody think? And so I kept making, when I, when I had to perform it the first time, uh, it made me very sick because I was just so nervous. Um, and also the experience of going back through my own experiences that were so close to me still at the time. Um, I, I thought, well, there's no way it would be, you know, sustainable to do it more than once. Um, the first time I, I was invited to actually perform it um, was at Shakespeare's Globe in London, and, and I felt like there were things in it that, that they needed to hear. And so for that reason, um, you know, I was willing to go over there and, and talk about, um, you know, uh, the, the ventures of my people across the ocean to England, um, our relationship between the Mohegan Nation and England over time, and also, you know, the relationship between Shakespeare, uh, our indigenous language, and colonialism uh, felt like important things to talk about over there. But originally, when they said to come do it over here, I thought, oh, no, how could I even do that? You know, it, it's just so much to go through each time. But what changed it for me, a big part of what changed it was people's reactions. Um, not only 
you know, realizing that every time I shared it, people actually appreciated it. You know, they weren't, they weren't like, you know, mad at me or making fun of me or all the, the silly things that went through my head when I originally, you know, was thinking about what will happen if I share this with people. But um, not, not only the native audiences who are, who, you know, my, my folks, folks from my, my tribe were super appreciative of it. My family were super appreciative of it. Other native folks are super appreciative of it, but even non-native folks would uh, write me uh, notes and things, you know, find me through social media or, or after the show, they would write me uh, notes sharing their own stories because after I had shared my story with them, they wanted to share something back. And that was really powerful to me. Um, it made me feel like what I was doing was, was worth something um, if it was actually affecting people in that way. And so that's what, that's what made me want to keep doing it. Madeline, let's talk a little bit more about the play itself. It's just you by yourself on stage. The set is is basically mounds of dirt, so it's just you and, and a lot of dirt. And um, if you could, because I I watched some videos on YouTube, and it's it's really really um, there's just a lot of energy that you project throughout the performance. But if you could help our our listeners just kind of understand and and what is the journey of the audience as you perform on in, in where we belong and some of the key themes and and just kind of just describe just what that experience is for somebody in the audience watching you on stage. Yeah, sure. So so the play moves back and forth between time. It doesn't sort of hug a specific timeline exactly in the way that it moves, but it basically chronicles my journey in 2015 to move to the UK to pursue a PhD in Shakespeare and how, as I go on that journey, um, it brings up the journeys of my ancestors who in the 1700s had to go to England on diplomatic missions for our people Um, and how actually, you know, there's a lot of parallels and a lot of things haven't changed that much. In addition to that, it's also the story of a wolf who becomes a bird. My my name in Mohegan um, it translates to to blackbird, and um, and I was thinking a lot when I started writing it about what it means to be up in the sky, what it means to be a bird person, and um, and I had been flying a lot at that point for work. Like I had gone from being someone who was always at home to someone who was flying, flying, flying constantly, and thinking about that shift in perspective. And and so um, a lot of the journey is is that journey is the journey of me becoming a bird um, while while crossing the ocean and it goes back and forth through time a lot to sort of make sense out of that journey using family anecdotes and you know little moments throughout my life um, but uh, but that is sort of the core of the journey and it and it does grapple deeply with my relationship between you know uh, my love of Shakespeare and my love of my own culture. And and sort of the reckoning by the end that um, the reason why Shakespeare is so prevalent is actually at the cost of, of you know, um, my Mohegan culture and that the reason why I'm not able to, you know, study – I wasn't able to study Mohegan as a kid and was able to study Shakespeare was because of all these colonial systems. So it's designed in a way that non-Native audiences, by sitting in my mind going on the journey, are forced to sort of see through my perspective. You know, there's a scene that takes place at the British Museum while I'm over in the UK. And it's been really interesting, um, like, having that experience because the things that seem so normal to us in terms of, like, what we expect of museums and things like that are are so shocking a lot of the times to non-Native audiences when told through our our lenses. Um, There was an audience member uh, a couple weeks ago who who asked if the play and the if, if who asked if the museum and the play existed, and I just remember that being particularly like interesting as a question because they couldn't fathom that there were these institutions that steal our relations and then don't give them back, you know. 
because they had never thought about museums in that way before. Um, and it was like, yes, of course, that museum is a very real place. It's a very famous museum. Um, but that's really what the play is doing is it's me up there, you know, making awkward jokes about colonialism for some of it, but also, um, you know, going on this journey and really taking the audience with me on this very personal uh, journey through my own life. I want to definitely get into to your background and, and, and your your passion for Shakespeare. And I, I think what's um, what really stands out to me is um, just from hearing you talk now and, and from from watching what I've watched of the play is that um, you, you're critical of the colonial legacy and, and that in many ways is embodied by Shakespeare. But yet at the same time, I can tell that you have tremendous respect for his writing in his genius? I think there are things in the plays that are still resonant and useful, and then there are things that are not. And I think that being able to say that about any classic stories you're handed is really important. You know, we are all, um, you know, the way that the, the American government is structured, we're all required to read Shakespeare in schools. The only named author in the American Common Core is William Shakespeare. Like, do I think that that's wrong? Yes like 100%, like, obviously, he's not even from here, you know, like, it should be Native authors who are named in the Common Core as required reading. But because we are required to absorb him, I feel like for me, it's important to then think about what could this mean beyond what's expected of it, right? Like, it's like, for me, as a kid reading it, I pictured our own world, I pictured the parallels between that and my culture, I, I pictured ways of imagining it that made sense to me. And I think that that permission is really important. If we're going to be absorbing these texts, like we should have the freedom to be able to reinterpret and adapt and imagine them in our own ways. Um, because that should be Madeline, uh, I'm sorry, we're gonna have to go to a break. But, but I'm gonna let you finish uh, these thoughts as soon as we come back. Folks, stay with us. Many Native athletes dream of getting signed to a college sports team. Students get a financial boost and some inch closer to their goal of becoming pro. However, the world of college sports is becoming increasingly competitive with numerous pressures once you get signed. We'll explore what it takes to reach and sustain NCAA status on the next Native America Calling. Close to half of American adults have high blood pressure. Of those, about 75% don't have it controlled. Singer, songwriter, and actor Natori Naughton is teaming up with the support of the American Heart Association to raise awareness of high blood pressure. You can join us in the Get Down With Your Blood Pressure Dance Movement. It's inspired by the four simple steps to self-monitoring blood pressure. Get it, slip it, cuff it, check it. Info about the dance at American underscore heart on Instagram. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're speaking today with theater writer, actress, director, and overall theater maker, Madeline Sayet. And we want to hear from you, too. Are you familiar with Madeline's work? Please join the conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. 
That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our phone lines are open. Our producers are standing by. So please give us a call. And uh, if you have a question for Madeline, she's here. She's happy to answer any of our questions or respond to comments from our guests today. And Madeline, I'm sorry. That was a quick break we had to go to there a minute ago. But before we before we broke up, you were talking about your background in Shakespeare and as a child or uh, as a young student reading Shakespeare and, and imagining some of these plays in Native America setting, Native American settings. And I think what's interesting is, you know, Shakespeare died in 1616. It was only a few decades after the British had begun colonizing in America. And Shakespeare actually referenced uh, indigenous peoples in some of his works. Specifically, I'm thinking of The Tempest. There's an indigenous character in The Tempest. And I understand you actually directed a version of The Tempest and, um, and built upon that indigenous character. Can you talk about that? Sure. So actually, the first play I ever directed, right, and this actually is, you know, in, in my piece where I talk about my relationship to it, this is an early point in that, but the first piece I ever directed was uh, Mohegan Reimagining of the Tempest, where we looked at the indigenous characters as being from here and their language as being of here, and it was centered on the question of what would happen if the quote-unquote indigenous character within that play could get his language back, and what would that journey be like if as he moved toward freedom, his language came back too. Um, at that time, you know, there wasn't Native theater being produced everywhere the way that there is now, back when I directed that first production. And so I was desperately trying to find a way to tell a story that had meaning to me using the tools that were handed to me and thinking about Shakespeare's language in that way. And um, and and so, so, yeah, so that original production, you know, it really centered around, like, what if this was a story of here as opposed to as a, of a story of somewhere else? Like, now I wouldn't make those same choices because, you know, I have, I have a different set of critical tools around that text and what I think it means now. But there has been an incredibly strong legacy of indigenous adaptations, reimaginings, and translations of Shakespeare's plays. And the fact that it's happened a certain number of times I think, you know, really tells you that there is a, a kind of value in that work. And a lot of the folks doing uh, translation work, particularly, there's been a lot of um, really incredible uh, indigenous language translations of Shakespeare, particularly in Alaska native languages, um, a few different ones that um, that come to mind. Uh, but those th those projects, those are what actually makes it exciting to me, because I'm not an interested for the man as I am interested in the way that the work gets reinterpreted and reinterpreted and reinterpreted over time and what that means for the different periods of time in which it exists. And I think the fact that it's being questioned and grappled with so deeply now, uh, both by Native folks, but there's also, you know, I feel like there's a tradition um, right now, too, evolving of Native adaptations of, of all sorts of Western classics, you know, in addition to, um, to Shakespeare. Uh, you know, Vera Starbard alone has made a Clinkett Christmas Carol and a Native Pride and Prejudice adaptation now that are both fantastic. So so there really is a, a body of work coming from lots of Native artists around this. But yeah, that very first production of, of The Tempest that I directed um, was how I entered into directing, was this thing of like, hey, I see something here someone else doesn't see. Let me tell my story through this this text. And in that, the Caliban character was Mohegan, and the Ariel character was 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 a flock of blackbirds. Um, and and the idea was was that it was centered in my homeland, and it had a prologue in Mohegan at the time, because the idea was was we were setting it up as a story of something that happened long ago. Because at the end of that play, the settlers leave the island, and so my thinking was, okay, well, what if this was a something that happened, and then the settlers never stayed? So I, I was really you know imagining it through my own lens at that time. 
Well, now let's talk more about where we belong in you know, a one-person play. Um, it, it's got to be challenging. That's just you up there on stage. Like I mentioned earlier, there, there's not a lot in, in terms of, of, of set decorations or, or costumes. It's pretty much just you, but you've got a team behind you, right? It's not just you doing the whole show. I mean, I would imagine there's folks that help you with it. Tell us about that. Yeah. So yeah, it's, 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 it's yeah, exactly. There's as a, as a solo, solo show, right? Because you always have a creative team and designers and all of that. Um, and, and there's a team that tours with me, but in terms of on stage, yeah, it is, it is just me. Um, uh, off stage, you know, we have, uh, you know, a, a costume designer, Asa Benali, who I've worked with a lot, who's fantastic. And then there's a director and a production designer and a sound designer and all of all of that. Sound, design, sound designer and composer, because the music is really scored to me. Eric Schoke made this really specific composition to score to my emotions to help keep people more access. Um, but um, but on stage, it is me, but it doesn't it's interesting. It doesn't always feel as much like a, a solo show, I think because of the fact that I'm there storytelling with the audience, but also because um, I bring my ancestors with me on the journey and they show up as mm-hmm. characters. And so that relationship also, also um, makes it not feel quite as much uh, like like one person alone as, as I'm not really up there alone, but also the audience is watching me constantly engaging with other other folks and other spirits um, who come with me on my on my journey. It is difficult. Um, I so prior to this production, I was a director predominantly, a director and a playwright a bit, but predominantly a director. So I was used to working with large groups of other Native artists and never feeling, never getting to feel alone, which actually is a big big difficulty too. Right, is just finishing the show. There's no other cast members, and you're kind of like, okay, have a good night, yourself, you know. Um, <laughs> It's very different than like working with large groups of people all the time. So um, it's it's been hard sometimes because sometimes you know the audience maybe there's no other native folks there that night. Maybe they don't fully get it. Um, you know it, it can be it can be difficult. But it's been a real learning experience. Um, you know I'm constantly you know trying to take care of my physical health a lot more because you know one little injury if you have to do the same thing every single day. Right. Where I mean, repeating you movements you injure your back and everything <laughs> yeah, becomes a big deal. It's like oh I'm no. S- Okay, because I'm sorry, you don't have an understudy, right? I mean, it's just you. If 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 you can't do, do the show, the show stand- or you do, okay. I do I do have a standby, yeah. And actually, I, I it was really scary for a while because she had, she they, the way they had structured it was they gave her like one rehearsal in April, <laughs> and then they didn't give her another rehearsal for another six months, and it's a ninety minute solo show. So I thought, oh my goodness, that's gonna be really hard when she has to go on. <laughs> But there were a couple days I was sick, and um, Emily Price, she's Osage, and um, she she went on uh, for a couple performances in Seattle and uh, and did did fantastic. And so that was actually a real relief for me because prior to that, I thought, oh no, if I get sick, the world's gonna end, you know, <laughs> or if I get injured, everything's gonna. Um, but it was really great because then instead, you know, just another performer got to tell the story and. Um, she she did a great job, so that that brought me a lot of comfort knowing that uh you know it didn't actually really all rely on me the way that I thought it did. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you choose your director? Because you had to bring somebody in to to direct your vision. Yeah, it was it was um, so early on. I didn't realize that it would become this big of a thing, you know. So um, uh, it, it was it was at a, it was at a point where, as a director, I know a lot of other directors. And um, at that point, when that director came on, we didn't know it was going to be a tour or a, it was really for the production of Shakespeare's Globe. And I had brought on a director, um, Man Tio, 
uh, for two reasons specifically. Uh, it was uh, one, I knew she'd done a, they, had, they had done a lot of work internationally, and I knew it was going to an international audience, and so I wanted to think about what that would mean. And um, and also because I needed to pick a director who wouldn't make me cry at the time. <laughs> Someone who was available, but who also wouldn't, um, who would be sensitive and not try and colonize the story was really important to me, you know, who who would be like, okay, this is your story, you know, you need to be a part of every conversation instead of somebody who's like, oh, I'm directing, so it's my story now, you know, and so that relationship was uh, was really important, even though it was a non-native director, that they were able to uh, adjust in that way, because normally, you know, working on native projects, I'm a big advocate for there being a native director on the project, but that just isn't what happened at that at that time. And so then the respectability, there's the the, the uh, responsibility that that director then has to learn how to work in in a native theater setting um, is very different. Because I actually didn't realize until that moment uh, that I'm used to, you know, like a specific set of protocols because I work predominantly in native theater um, compared to compared to a lot of other folks working in the industry who, you know, are trying to get a product or trying to work toward a certain thing. And I'm just, you know, not interested in all of that. Well, Madeline, I, I know that um, you, you struggled a little bit with the, even the term director, and you actually reached out to Mohegan Elder who helped you gain... Uh, a new a new perspective and a better understanding of of what it means to direct from from a Mohegan perspective. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, there was a point early on in my career where I was I think I was I was directing a version of Mary Catherine Eagle's you know incredible piece Liver of Full Moon, um, which is about the Violence Against Women Act and um, you know the, the the survivors who testified to 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 get it passed at that time uh, tell retold their stories during the play. And when I was working on this, I thought. My God, the Western version of directing is so, the word is not right. It doesn't describe anything about what I'm trying to do, about how, you know, you bring people together and you work with folks. Um, and uh, my mentor, uh, the late uh, William S. Ellerman Jr., he was like, you need to talk to you. We need to be using the words in our own languages to talk about what we're doing. And so at that time, I, I spoke with um, Mohegan Elder Stephanie Fielding um, about what the word would be in our language. Um, and our language, you know, is is in a reclamation project, um, so so the language is, is shifting a little bit. But at that time, uh, the word she gave me was Katahan Oyasinakwak, um, which she said meant "our heart." She leads us there, and and so that reframing was just so helpful for me because it it, it made sense out of what I was trying to do. That it's not about. Um, you know, you go here, you go there, right? It's not about mm -hmm. that. It's about like, how do we get everybody on the path together to take, to be able to go on the journey we need to go on together, right? And so if the tension doesn't ever need to be on me, then the tension is always, how can I lift up and support whoever I'm working with? What do they need right now? Like paying attention to that was such a gift to that reframing because then I never needed to worry about what I was doing. It was always about how, how can I do the work I need to make sure everyone can do the work that they need. Um, so that was really powerful. Folks, if you'd like to get in on our conversation today with Madeline Sayet, please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We're learning all about Madeline's work today. She's a Mohegan playwright, an artist, a theater maker, and she's got a play that's out now. It's called Where We Belong, and we're learning all about just what went into that production, what the inspiration was, and uh, and how the play actually transpires on stage. And Madeline, um, I read that you require um, theaters where you perform 
to agree to an accountability rider. And, and whenever I hear about performers and riders, I immediately think about big bowls with no green M&Ms and, and things like that. So tell us more about what you expect from theaters that you partner with. Yeah, I should have done the M&M thing. That probably honestly would have been easier. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so I was really concerned when they said my, tour, my show was going to go on tour because all I could think was like, uh, the, the idea of it going in, it just sounded so colonial. Like, well, why is it one Mohegan show story? Why am I going to tell my Mohegan story? All these other places, they should be telling the stories of those places. You know, there should be people from those places telling their stories in those spaces. So I, I really was was not uh, into this idea. And um, and then, I, then, you know, I realized, like, well, if I'm going to do it, if this is going to be the first day of play in those spaces, then then that can only happen if I can require them to do these other things, right? If I can require they have an event with a local Native writer's work being presented so that they're building those relationships, that they have an event um, or or some sort of action around language revitalization um, of the place that they're in, you know, specifically, so that they're not – they're thinking about the language of the place that they're in, not just my language um, – that they have a community event of some kind where they bring, you know, folks into their space and they welcome them and they begin a dialogue around how they can partner together um, for the future. Uh, free tickets for all Native folks, because that just seems like a given, because everyone should have free tickets anyway on their land. But also, for me as a performer, um, it, the play is, 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 is more powerful and better and, and easier to perform when there's other Native people there in community with me. So it just it's really important for a lot of reasons. Um, what are the other things that they agree to do? Oh, they have to, um, you know, agree to never, never perform red face again in their theater. Mm. Um, and, and a few other things. Um, yeah. And I just thought that, you know, okay, if I'm going to do this, what are, what is the baseline? And cause these aren't, these aren't like, this is sort of what I feel like the baseline, you know, it's like, that was the minimum. Um, I, I you know, I, I probably, if I had thought longer, could have come up with more things. But I thought, you know, in order just to show a basic sense that you care enough that you're not just going to be an unsafe space even to tell the story, right, let alone that you're going to, you know, do the right things going on to the future, um, what is the baseline that a theater could agree to? Um, and so, and so, yeah, I created this accountability writer just thinking about, like, okay, I, what I didn't want was for them to just be like, great, we did our Native show, and check. And now it's in and now it's out and we did one and yay for us. Right, um, and right. just like treat it like it was some sad story instead of like, no, actually, what are the issues in the play that come up? The issues in the play that come up are language. What are you going to do about that? Right. The issues in the play that come up are the fact that there's red face going on in theater spaces instead of, you know, actual native stories being told. What are you going to do about that? And so that's sort of why it was created was because I didn't want them to be able to be like, oh, that's sad. Now we're moving on. Right. I wanted them to be able to actually have okay. to, to think okay. about what are they going to do? Yeah, and Madeline, have have are, are the theaters receptive? Are they they meeting these um these requirements you have, and are they following up like you like you're describing? Yeah, it's interesting. So I they all have to sign this, and they all agree to do everything before I come and do the show. I think there's been a a spectrum of how well they they follow it. I think uh, sometimes it depends on the size of the theater staff. Sometimes it depends on how whether they already have relationships with native organizations. Sometimes it depends on how, how much, you know, I've been involved for the future. We're hiring an additional producer to just monitor the accountability rider, because um, I think it needs more attention um, than it was being given previously. 
so so yeah so everyone's everyone's on paper agreed to do it but you know non-native orcs so they sometimes they think it's they think it's going to be do have to reach out to speakers of a language and realize how busy they are. They've never, you know, so, so they're learning as they work through the rider. But all the theaters it's been presented at um, have at the very least agreed to do it and have been accountable to when I say, hey, you didn't do this step, are you going to do it later? Um, so if they miss something, then they have to figure out how to do it at some point, even if they didn't get it right during the tour being there. Madeline, we're going to have to take another short break here in just another minute. When we come back, I want to talk more about where you've performed the plays, what cities it's been in, uh, where folks can, can can see the play as well. And uh, anybody, if you've got a question, if you've got a comment for today's show, please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We're speaking with Madeline Sayet, a Mohegan playwright. And um She's got a, a strong background in Shakespeare and a reinterpretive view of how Shakespeare can be performed and presented by Native American people. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. What do you think of Shakespeare? You think Shakespeare is something that Native people should read and, and reinterpret? I uh, would love to hear from anybody listening today what your thought is on Shakespeare and, and some of these new ways that Native American playwrights and other performers are telling these stories that go back many, many centuries, um, colonial writers, colonial artists, and uh, reimagining them in a Native context. So again, our number, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Did you know more than 51,000 Native and Indigenous people are living with epilepsy in the United States? Epilepsy is a neurological disorder that causes recurring, sudden, unprovoked surges of abnormal electrical activity in the brain. Call 1-800-332-1000 to get information and resources. Help someone you know by learning seizure first aid at epilepsy.com slash first aid. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still time to join our conversation with Madeline Sayet. Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. You can also post on our social media. Our Twitter handle is 180099native. Madeline, let's talk more about um, where the play has been performed. What cities has the play been performed in? Uh, and, and where else do you plan to go? Yeah, so um, it's been in Philly, uh, Chicago, uh, at Hudson Valley Center, and most recently in Seattle. And uh, it's been really, really incredible. The native turnout each place has been really, um, really super wonderful. I, I really appreciate all of the both the these individuals and the community organizations that have supported it in each location. Um, it's going next to New York City, which is a big deal because um, there really hasn't been very much native representation on major stages there. Huge downtown theater scene lots of you know native theaters but in terms of like those big broadway off-broadway spaces uh, not a lot of representation um so so it's really pretty pretty exciting that it's, it's going to be done um there at the public theater um in in uh just a couple weeks um but also complicated because uh that you know like a lot of those big institutions it has a legacy of, of red face and so there's a lot it's working against to be in those spaces as well Madeline, 
Philadelphia, Chicago, Seattle, New York City. These are our big, large cities. Any thought to going to, to maybe some smaller regional locations with large native populations? I'm thinking Albuquerque, Phoenix, Denver, Rapid City, Oklahoma City, places like that. Yeah, I would love to. I I wish I, I feel like it's a conversation that the people who are in charge of this particular production. I think a big a big uh, problem is even though it looks like just dirt on the stage is the way that the set's built currently. It's got some restrictions that um that enable that particular set to travel with me. But the story, you know, I think is just as strong. Sometimes done uh, with with nothing there. So. So I think it's about figuring out what is the more mobile way. There is, I think there's some discussions for a, a, a production, hopefully, fingers crossed, coming in Phoenix. But, um, uh, but yeah, it's about figuring out, I think, also a more mobile way where, where I can just tell the story and show up. And also other stories, too, you know? This mm-hmm. story, the more that we've had, like, more positive representation in the media, the more I'm like, okay, what's the next thing, you know? Like, I feel like I wrote, the, I wrote this in 2018. Um, I feel like if I was going to write something right now, that it'd be super different, probably a lot funnier. You know, I feel like there's just a lot of barriers that have been broken down between then and now um, that are also really exciting. So, yeah, I hope it goes to places with, with more uh, more Native audiences. I'm excited to do in New York because of being a Northeastern person and how little representation we have in the Northeast. Uh, it feels really important to be in some of those spaces for that reason. Um, but I, I really do feel that Seattle was really indicative of oh, right, this is what it would be like if lots of Native folks showed up because there were some performances where you could just feel the space was so much more vibrant because you were able to have these big Native communities showing up. Um, so that would be, that would yeah, that would really definitely be the hope at some point. Madeline, can the play be streamed? Uh, it, uh, so, uh, no, technically it can't be streamed, but there is a, there's a filmed adaptation that is actually really good uh, it's just that it's held up. I have to. I think I have to try and petition Actors Equity to to like uh, lessen their rules on it because basically uh, they were letting people do things in the pandemic on certain contracts when everything was shut down with theaters. Uh, that then uh, the rules changed when everything reopened. And so there's this really great film adaptation of it that hopefully will become available. But I'm I've got to figure out what the logistics are of getting it back to the people. Okay. We've got a caller on the line right now, Ray, listening in Farmington, New Mexico. Ray, hello. Hello. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I just have a a basic question, so I just heard bits and pieces of it. I was doing other things, so uh, you might have gone, you guys might have gone over it. My question is, does she, so does she um, work with the, uh, only out east somewhere, or can she come to the southwest if, if like, um, if someone has an idea, a native thing, play, or something like that, to, yeah, something to that effect. So Thanks for co- that was my question. Okay, yeah. thank you, Ray. Yeah, and uh, Madeline did address that a little bit, but, but Madeline, perhaps maybe expand on that a little bit. Here's Ray up in Four Corners in New Mexico, and I'm just thinking about, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, community theaters and, and, and places like that, smaller markets, smaller venues, perhaps, um, in, in the Southwest and other parts of Native America. And, and what would it take to, I mean, you mentioned the set and some of those challenges like that, but um, obviously there's folks that are interested in, in getting your play in more markets in Native America. So maybe expand on that a little bit, Madeline. I think also uh, it sounded like part of Ray's question was also just in general and working on things if somebody has an idea for something. So 
traditionally within my career, I've worked all over the place um, because I've worked with so many different other Native folks on their projects. Um, I'm actually based in, in Phoenix now, so um, because I'm a, an assistant professor at ASU, so so definitely uh, much more easy for me to you know work on things in the Southwest now than it than it was before. Um, but I'm always I'm always open to collaborating, and if I can't collaborate, figuring out who I can connect people with to make sure that you know communities are telling the stories they want to communicate uh, theatrically. I think that that's just so important. I think that there should be every single Native nation should have you know theater makers in their community that are getting that stories are getting told. Um, you know, however they need to be um, to really, you know, uh, enhance sovereignty in that way. Um, for my personal play, yeah, I think it's just a matter of uh, the when and the how. Uh, super open to it going. I, I'd love for it to, to happen you know, wherever people want it to happen. I think it's just figuring out some of the logistics uh, as it pertains to the sort of producing side of things because I'm not the one running the tour itself. The, the tour itself is in the hands of producers. So it's just about asking and and figuring out what the the model is for for how it travels in those ways, but definitely um, I personally am always always uh, excited to be engaged with with new communities to figure out you know what kind of story we want to tell and how. Madeline, something else that we need to talk about today is uh, Flying Bird's Diary, and this is a, a play that that you're currently directed directing. Tell us more about it, and, and where can people see that play? Yeah, so Flying Bird's Diary um, is about building uh, the last excellent speaker of uh, the Mohegan language. And uh, the play is written by Melissa Tanaquich and Zobel, who is actually my mother. And um, it's it's kind of amazing because when people look back, you know, we always joke, when people look back, they're going to think, oh, your mother was a playwright. That's how you became a playwright. But no, I was a playwright. And then she saw I was playwriting and she was like, oh, it can't be that hard then, you know? <laughs> so she started, she became a playwright after me, even though she was already a writer. Um, and so this is really exciting because uh, we're doing it at Long Wharf in New Haven this week. And uh, it's so rare that a major Connecticut, I don't think it's ever happened, that a major Connecticut theatrical institution uh, supports uh, a Connecticut indigenous story, right? Like it's so rare that our, our these major institutions support Native work. So it's really exciting Um to be telling this story that we care about, about our ancestors with an all native cast um, of uh, 10 incredible actors, you know, coming together to tell that story. And there'll be uh, workshop performances of it uh, this uh, coming Saturday and Sunday, the, the 22nd and the 23rd. Uh, and yeah, I'm super, super excited about that. And then I go right from that to doing where we belong uh, at the public theater in New York. But um, Really, really powerful story. Really important ancestors to be able to to honor in this way, telling this story. Um, and uh, and and Fidelia Fielding, um, Flying Bird, who, who the story is about, just recently, her uh, her journals, her her journals in which she wrote the Mohegan language were repatriated. Uh, Cornell University just recently gave them back to us. So it's a really powerful moment for that story as well. Mm. Well, it sounds sounds really, really interesting, like a, a really exciting performance, a, a play. And Madeline, tell us more. Uh, you, you're a teacher. You're a professor there at ASU. You work in, in, in Native theater. Um, tell us a little bit more uh, about how you teach these topics to your students. Yeah, so I'm, I'm super excited that in the spring I get to teach contemporary Native drama because that, I feel like, is just going to be such a fun class to teach because I get to think about um, – 
instead of, you know, some literary courses are like, how do we synthesize this down to one thing? Instead, I get to think about, no, like, how do I make sure they understand that there's such a broad spectrum to this work? So how do I, you know, get to not only uh, introduce them to Native writers from many different nations, but also many different genres? You know, even, even Flying Bird's Diary is, is so different from so many other things because it's, it's a Victorian Native play. Like, when non-Natives think about the Victorian era, you know, they never think about Native people. Um, and so it's just interesting, right? Like, like what are the things that are unexpected? Um, so, so, yeah, I'm really excited to be engaging with, with students about, you know, uh, not only the incredible breadth of work that already exists, but then, you know, for Native students, okay, what are you going to contribute to this? Like, what are you going to write? What, what kind of story do you want to tell? Uh, because ultimately, like, that's really what I'm always thinking about is, you know, what is what is what are we building for the next generation to keep building forward from? Because the next generation of Native playwrights who I've already even been introduced to are just so incredible and just keep building, building, building leaps and bounds beyond what we've already set up for them. I'm really imagining us into the future, you know, um, not just indigenous futurisms are things that are, you know, like literally imagining us in the future, but just the way they tell stories um, uh, really breaks down a lot of the, the things that we, you know, can't, can't see beyond, I think, in our current consciousness. Madeline, you, you have such a profound perspective on on the theater and, and how Native people are, are served by the theater and what we as Native, Native people can do to make the theater um, more aligned with who we are as people, both historically and culturally. And, you know, there's so much emphasis um, on, on Native American art school here in New Mexico and Santa Fe. We have IIA and there are other really strong art programs. And um, I'm curious, though, I, I don't hear a, a lot I don't hear as much about like like performing art schools focused specifically for Native people. And it sounds like um, a lot of what your vision is and a lot of your efforts um, would be really suitable to a, a specific Native American performing arts school. Is there something like that already in, in the works? Maybe I'm maybe I'm just misinformed or or is there momentum or is that on anybody's radar in the future? It's the dream. We talk about it a lot. Um, you know, it's funny. Yeah, there's there's a lot of other Native theater artists where we talk about that a lot. You know, someone ends up a program and it's like, oh, all the difficulties they're confronting would be solved if that had only been, you know, a Native-centered theater program. I think, there, you know, there might be there might be something that works I don't know about. I, I, um, I do also serve as there's a there's like there's a mini program at Yale called the um, Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program um, that does offer like mini programming you know for for Native students at Yale around that but it's not actually like a full fledged training program in, in any way shape or form and I I really I really do feel like what you're describing is is really like if I could have any job you know it'd be like director of the Indigenous Performing you know like that would be it because. So much of what I think about is is the power of story medicine, is understanding that we always understood as as Native people, you know, the power of storytelling and what it was for. And and actually a big part of the harm of of why we haven't been in these major theater spaces is, is one, because they've been keeping us out, but also because they were so actively used to hurt us. Um, that like there were these periods of history in which, you know, Red Face on Broadway was in alignment with, you know, the, the Indian removal. And, and they were doing these things intentionally to say, no, Native people aren't human. Let's show you they're not human in these spaces. 
right? So it was it was it wasn't accidental that we weren't in those spaces. It was like no, they were using those spaces to harm us. And so the steps of reclaiming those spaces and then bringing our ways of telling stories into those spaces, there's a reason it's taken generations and generations and generations of work. Um, and now I feel like it's really about how do we not accidentally assimilate into those spaces, but how do we make sure when we show up in those spaces, we can show up in our way and do things in a good way that, that is meaningful to us because they're going to learn more from that then they probably have to teach us because they don't even realize how toxic the history of those spaces are that they're operating in, you know? So, so yeah. So I feel like the dream really is that, right? Like how could we actually have uh, a center? Well, also, so one, there's two things that are the dream. So thing one is, yeah, like a, like a training program that is just indigenous performance, just native artists. And then also how come we don't have an indigenous performing arts center anywhere right on this, continent um that i know of i hope it exists that i don't know of it and then someone's going to tell me about it but i keep waiting for that also that like every other place you go there would be you know some art center dedicated to the indigenous performance of that place and then here on this continent we don't have that so those are the two things that i really think could be really transformational for for how we move forward in an even bigger way I've always thought um, a possible venue for something like that could be at Haskell in Lawrence, Kansas, because they have that historic theater there on campus and, and a long legacy of performance arts and, and plays and things like that. Just just saying there, just saying. Um, well, Madeline, we're, unfortunately, we are running down on, on the hour here, but um, where can our listeners go to learn more about Where We Belong, Flying Bird's Diary, and just you and your career? Yeah, so... Um... Uh, real quick, uh, Haskell actually was one of the foundational organizations when it came to indigenizing Shakespeare, both uh, as a school and in the arts, if anyone ever wants to look into that. But also, um, yeah, for me and for my career, uh, you can always just go to my website, which is just com. is probably easiest. I try and keep it pretty up to date uh, with what's going with what's going on Um uh, in, in my life and my career. Uh, otherwise, Long Wharf Theater is where Flying Birds Die will be this week, and then the public theater uh, will we'll be hosting Where We Belong. And as always, all tickets to Where We Belong for Native People are free. Um, the code, I think, for free Native tickets for that is uh, w, capital WWB uh, invite. And then there's a special all-Indigenous-only audience performance on November 6th. The code for that is WWP belong, but you can always find that information out on social media. Well, Madeline, I want to thank you again for joining us today. It's been a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed learning more about your career and, and all of your perspectives, especially your thoughts on Shakespeare and us as Native American people reinterpreting some of these ancient stories that uh, for so long have not had Native American perspectives introduced into them. So we have reached the end of the hour. And again, thank you, Madeline Sayet, for sharing this time with us and a thoughtful and inspirational conversation about your career in Native theater. Join us again here on Native America Calling tomorrow as we talk about what it takes to be a college athlete. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. Support for the renovated Anchorage Marriott downtown, one block from the Denina Convention Center, close to restaurants and shopping. Reservations are being taken at 800-228-9290. A special rate is available for those attending AFN. 
There's no reason to let uncertainty about the election process keep you from voting. That's why AARP created state-specific, comprehensive election guides. Learn more at aarp.org slash election guides. AARP supports this show. Domestic violence beyond Nakumicho. Contact Ominasi Indian Health Care Provider, Kahulalu, one eight hundred three one eight two five nine six. www.healthcare.gov-setlist-number domestic violence. domestic abuse violence. Healthcare and Healthcare Service Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.